As our kids make their way back to you, you could grab a Bible and turn to the book of Exodus. Thank you. Exodus in chapter 34. We'll get there in a second. All right, just a quick little update about the year to come. Something I mentioned last week was that there's a Bible reading calendar that we are encouraging people to, to participate in this year. If you're interested, if, you're not, if you don't already have plans for how you're going to spend your devotional time in the mornings or evenings or whenever you do it, then we are promoting this Bible reading calendar. If you, if you endeavor to take this challenge, you will read through the entire Bible in 2024. And in fact, you'll read through the New Testament and the Psalms twice and the Old Testament once during the course of 2024. So I encourage you to think about doing that. If that's, that's a little intense, if that feels like too much, that's four chapters of the Bible a day. That's a lot. Maybe you just want to pull one of those chapters out. Just pick one line. There's four different lines. Just pick one and read that one every day this year. I, I'm confident of this. If you choose to do this challenge, you won't regret it. God is going to bless this. As we spend time as a, as a congregation in his word, there's nothing more important. There's nothing better that we could do. So I thought I was being optimistic. I made 40 copies of this calendar and put them at the Welcome Center. Last Sunday, I thought that's probably twice as many as we need. They're all gone. They all went. And so what I will do is after the service today, I'll, I have this last one. I'll, I'll print off copies of this. We'll put them back at the Welcome Center. You can grab one today after the service. Or you, if you're coming tomorrow, the reading plan starts tomorrow, so you can grab one tomorrow. Um, but this is available. Also, if you use the Bridge app on your phone, um, it links to this reading plan. So if you click on the, the Bible reading plan on the Bridge app, it'll take you to this reading plan. Then what I thought about this year as we're all, or those who choose to, are reading this, following this plan and reading through the Bible this year, what I would do is on Sundays for our sermon, is I'll just pull a chapter that, that was read in the week previous, and I'll preach a sermon on that. And that way, throughout the year, we'll kind of follow along with this reading plan as well. So for today, since the plan hasn't started yet, this is the last day of 2023, what I thought I would do is preach one big flyover sermon on the whole Old Testament. This morning, we'll cover the whole Old Testament, and then tomorrow, since we have a special uh, Monday, where we're not usually together on a Monday, but this week we are, I'll preach a whole sermon on the New Testament tomorrow, and then we will be ready. That will be our gateway into this year of, of reading through the Bible. So this morning, the Old Testament, and I'm calling this sermon Promises Made. That's the theme, Promises Made, because there's an awful lot of promises made in the Old Testament. Tomorrow, as you can imagine, the sermon will be entitled Promises Kept. Promises kept. So that's the plan. I'm going to read from Exodus 34. I had a hard time deciding what, I'm preaching on the whole Old Testament, what passage to read. I opted to read Exodus 34 and verses 1 to 7. Hopefully you'll see why by the end of the sermon, otherwise I failed. Here we go. Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that are on the first tablets, which you broke. 
Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask for his help. Holy Father, we come now before your holy scriptures, your your word that you have spoken and seen fit to preserve, to be passed down, and now it's in our possession. It's your word, but you've given it to us. And I pray now as we think about it that you'd help us to make sense of it, that you would make this book come alive, live, live to us. We know your word is living and active. I pray that as we think about it that you would make it live for us. In Christ's name, amen. Possibly the best assignment that I ever got in seminary. I spent three years in seminary. This was the most, by best assignment, I mean this is the most impactful. This is the assignment that I think back on the most of all the assignments I got from any professor during those three years. The assignment was this. Write a paper about Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Answer this question, what did Jesus think about the Old Testament. That was the assignment. Not what do I think about it, not what do rabbis think about it, but what did Jesus think? What was his view of the Old Testament? Best assignment I ever got. Do you know why? Because in order to write that paper, you have to look up every single time Jesus quoted the Old Testament, which is loads of times. And then you have to see what he thought, what he did with the Old Testament, how he spoke about the Old Testament, when he quoted it, and why he quoted it the way that he quoted it in order to see what he thought about the authorship of the Old Testament, who he thought wrote it, and what he thought the authority of the Old Testament was. Is it an authoritative holy book? And how did he see himself fitting into the story of the Old Testament. Now, if you do that assignment, what you quickly discover is that Jesus himself had a very high view of the Old Testament scriptures. He himself was clearly convinced that the whole Old Testament was God's word. He clearly was not interested in debating whether or not The Old Testament was binding on all of God's people. He clearly thought that it was. And he was apparently not embarrassed by the passages that sometimes make us cringe. He did not 
ever feel the need to apologize for God's behavior in the Old Testament. Look for a passage where Jesus is apologizing for what God did in the Old Testament. You won't find it. He never did that. He never once in any way suggested that there was any difference between his own moral convictions and those of the God of the Old Testament. He never suggested that there was any difference between the two. He never, ever said anything like, well, that's what people used to think God was like, but actually now we know him better. So just look at me. Don't worry about the Old Testament. Just look at me. He never said anything like that. Not only did he not say that, but he actually went out of his way to identify with the God of the Old Testament, right? He said, I and the Father are one. We're the, I'm the same as the God that you read about when you read the Old Testament. In fact, he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When he was asked to weigh in on questions of morality, do you know what he did? He quoted the Old Testament. When he was asked to weigh in on the question of love, what, is it, what does it mean for us to love our neighbor? Do you know what he did? He quoted two different laws from the Old Testament. He got his definition of love from the law in the Old Testament. When he was asked his own sense of his own identity, do you know what he did? He quoted the Old Testament. He, his own understanding of who he was was rooted in the Old Testament. Testament, but despite the fact that Jesus clearly and unambiguously considered the entirety of the Old Testament God's authoritative true word, still, I mean, he couldn't have been more clear on that. Still, the church has had a more complicated relationship with the Old Testament over the centuries, and let's be honest, it's not hard to figure out why. Right? Doesn't the Old Testament uh, contain some, let's call them, puzzling stories? Doesn't the Old Testament contain a story of a God who strikes a man dead for reaching out to steady a decorated box? Remember that story? God did that in the Old Testament. Doesn't the Old Testament contain a God who sends bears to maul children who have been disrespectful to their elder? He does. That does happen in the Old Testament. Doesn't the Old Testament have a God who sends deadly poisonous serpents to bite people because they complained in the desert? It does. It does contain that story. And doesn't the Old Testament, doesn't it just seem like God sends his people off to commit genocide against other ethnic groups? Isn't that in the Old Testament? Well, not exactly. But a lot of people do think that. There's a lot in the Old Testament to give us pause. There's certainly a lot of things in the Old Testament that are way out of step with modern times. Way back in the second century, so the church is already established, second century, a man named Marcion, he tried to edit the Christian scriptures. He, he saw the Old Testament as a liability to the church. He basically said, look, we're not going to get, if we, if we keep those stories in our holy book, we're not going to get any traction. We're not, th- this thing is not going to grow. But what we can do is edit that stuff out, and then it'll be way more appealing to way more people. And so he proposed that actually the God as presented in the Old Testament is actually the bad guy of history. 
And there is no, Marcion said, there is no way to reconcile Old Testament wrathful, angry God with New Testament loving Jesus God. And so we might as well just admit that and cut off the dead weight of the Old Testament and go with the New. That was the proposal in the second century by a man named Marcion. Thankfully, Marcion's suggestions were officially rejected by the church. But there are still a lot of Christian churches who don't really feel comfortable venturing into the territory of the Old Testament. They kind of dash in and dash out, right? They run into the Old Testament and maybe mine some inspiring stories out of there. David, Daniel, you know the ones, right? And then get out of there as fast as you can. Maybe, maybe dash in and, and grab the Ten Commandments and get out of there, right? Before you bump into a, a, a story that makes you uncomfortable. Go in there, grab a few of the comfortable psalms. you got to be careful when you're grabbing psalms. Because <laughs> some of those psalms contain some stuff that would make anybody uncomfortable. Grab, like, say, grab a Psalm 23 and get out of there. Right? That's what an awful lot of Christians do. And that's how a lot of churches treat the Old Testament. They raid it, they grab what they want, and they get out of there fast. They get out of there before they have to deal with the bloodshed. They get out of there before they have to deal with the sacrifices. They get out of there before they have to deal with the Old Testament events that make us uncomfortable. And as you can imagine, what I am suggesting this morning is that that is the entirely wrong way to approach the Old Testament. Listen, the Old Testament is your friend. The Old Testament is full of a loving and gracious God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. As you've heard me say many times, there is a fundamental continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. They're telling the same story, different sides of the same story, and we encounter the same God in both. So one helpful way to think about the connection between Old Testament and New Testament is to think about the Old Testament containing a lot of promises, promises made by God to us, promises made. And then the New Testament tells the story of how those promises were kept. God kept his promises. So we'll just do a quick flyover with that filter in mind. The story of the Bible, as you know, begins right at the beginning with the story of creation, in the beginning. For those are the first words in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we go. That's how the story begins, with creation. And it goes on from there to describe some of the details of how the creation of the universe unfolded. Some people read those verses as poetic and metaphorical. Other people read those verses as literal scientific history. But regardless of how you approach those first two chapters of the Bible, everyone agrees that the opening chapters of the Bible are making the point that it was God himself who created the universe. He made it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. And when he made it, it was good. That's, that's not debated. That's not controversial. All Christians believe that. Creation was initially entirely good. Humans in particular were made in God's image, made to be in relation to God, and were very good, very good. That's the joyful beginning of the book that God wrote. But the story very quickly takes a turn 
for the worse, as stories often do. By chapter 3, we're already reading about a human choice to rebel against God, to break God's law. Now tension is introduced into the story. And now consequences, repercussions follow. And not only is death introduced into this world, but humans are now kicked out of the garden and out of the immediate presence of the Lord, right? The story began in a safe place, in a good place, in a garden where all of our needs were met and we were in the presence of God Almighty. Things rapidly spin out of control for there, from there. By the time we get to chapter 6, that's not very far into the story, just chapter 6, we're told that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It took six chapters to get to only evil all the time from it was very good. That's, that's, that's not a long time to go from very good to only evil all the time. And God, therefore, responds to this with drastic action. Do you remember that? He basically wipes out all of humanity and leaves one family. That's bad. That's a bad beginning. And then he starts over. He says, all right, we're going to do this again. We're going to start over. And then eventually, as the population grows and recovers, God calls a special people unto himself. And that part of that story where God is calling a special people to be his chosen people, his treasured possession, that begins with a man named Abram. Abram is called. Remember, God, God initiates. God reaches out and grabs hold of this man, Abram. And he makes a covenant with him. God makes a unilateral covenant with Abram. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And Abram gets a new name. He becomes Abraham, which means father of many. His wife, Sarai, gets a new name, Sarah. And they, and they have a son in their old age. They're way past the age where you would expect them to have a child, but they have one named Isaac, and they have a grandson named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. You know this story. Joseph ends up in Egypt, right, in hostile territory, not in the promised land. As a result of Joseph being in Egypt, eventually because of famine in the land, the whole family comes into Egypt. And then there's a ruler of Egypt that doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't respect the Israelites, enslaves them. And they end up being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, for generation after generation, enslaved in Egypt. Right? Everybody, every human has a role to play in this story. Some humans, their role was just be a slave in Egypt from birth to death. That was the role that God had assigned them to play for 400 years, God's people, in slavery, in Egypt. And then finally, according to God's timeline, he raises up a leader, a prophet, a liberator, a man named Moses. And Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. But it takes them 40 years of wandering in the desert without a home, being exiles. 40 years, a whole generation to get there to the promised land. And once they get there, Moses himself cannot go in because of his rebellion but the people of God do. And once they're in there, they ask for a king. Now, whether or not the request for a king is a good request or a bad request, that's debatable. Some people say yes, some people say no. But their reason for wanting a king was definitely bad. Do you remember the reason? They said, God, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. 
But the whole time, God had wanted them to be set apart, not like the other nations, a treasured possession, right? He grabbed hold of Abraham. He said, you and your family are going to be special to me, and I want you to be different. I want you to eat different. I want you to dress different. I want you to speak different. I want you to worship different. I don't want you to fit in to the rest of the world. I'm doing something special through your line, and it's going to wreck it if you just fit in with the rest of the world. I want you to stand out. He gives those instructions, and they turn around and say, God, actually, we don't want to stand out. We want to be just like all the other nations. And when we look around at those other nations, God, we see that they all have kings, all of them. So we want a king too. So it's not necessarily that the request for a king was bad, but the reason was definitely bad because they wanted to fit in with the rest of the nations, which is exactly what God did not want for his people. He does give him a king, though, in response to that request. He gives him a king named Saul. That was kind of hit and miss, had up good points and bad points. Following Saul, I had King David, who was more of a man after God's own heart, although he, too, committed some spectacular sins, followed by his son Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, although he, too, uh, engaged in some sinful patterns, especially later in life. But it was under Solomon's rule, when Solomon was king, that the people of God built a temple, a place for God to dwell. We know God is everywhere. He's not contained by walls or temples. And yet, this was a special place where God's presence could be felt and experienced, where God's people could gather and worship. This is a, it was magnificent. It was one of the wonders of the world. After the temple was built, though, once again, moral disintegration. This is the pattern that happens over and over again in the Old Testament, where God blesses the people, extends grace to the people, and they respond with rebellion and moral disintegration. And so the kingdom ends up becoming divided between north and south. They end up being invaded by some of the other pagan superpowers, uh, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. They get captured, removed from the promised land, taken into captivity. Eventually, they're released and allowed to return to the promised land, and they have to rebuild the temple because it had been destroyed. So they rebuild the temple, and then you come to the end of the Old Testament, and you're kind of left wondering, all right, well, what now? They're back in the promised land, but it doesn't feel super stable. What's going to stop another superpower from coming in and attacking them? They're not really that strong. So, so what's going to happen? They rebuilt the temple. It's not as good as the first one around. Everyone agrees that the second temple is not as glorious as the first. Things just feel a little bit unstable and kind of pathetic right now. And they're all wondering what's going to happen. What's going to happen politically? What's going to happen religiously? Is this Messiah figure ever going to, ever going to come? Well, we believe he will because God said he will, but when? We don't know. And that's how the Old Testament ends with a bit of a question mark. The structure of the Old Testament, just real quickly, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Law, the Pentateuch, right? That, in those first five books, we get God's law given to us. The next 12 books are called the historical books. They kind of tell the story, the history, the narrative of the people of God. The next five books after that are called the writings. That's where we get a lot of the poetry. Um, Job, Song of Songs, Psalms, these are all the writings. And then the last 17 books, you get the prophets, the, major pro the five major prophets, and then 
the minor prophets, right? That's the structure of the Old Testament. Law, history, writings, and prophecy. Those books together provide us with a clear revelation of the character of God. They show us what God is like. And in these books, we find a God who is passionate about holiness, right? Holiness is all over the Old Testament. God cares about holiness. We also find a God who is passionate about his covenant relationship with his people. God cares about holiness. God cares about his people. Those passions are related. God is holy. God loves his people. God wants his people to be holy too. There's a connection there. He was consistently passionate for his covenant people to be set apart to have characters and lives that reflected his character and his life. And this is why sin is such a problem in the Bible, because sin is not like God. God is not like sin. In fact, sin is anti-God, and sin separates us from God. Sometimes people complain that in the Old Testament, God comes off as being angry or wrathful. But The Bible presents God as angry over sin. Not arbitrarily angry, but angry over sin. And he's angry over sin because sin is a relationship breaker. God is angry over sin's capacity to sever his relationship with his people. The Old Testament teaches that all people are sinful and that we're not able to solve our own sin problem. That the broken relationships that have been damaged by sin require some sort of divinely initiated reparation. But how? This is where biblical references to atonement become central to the plot line. Right? The English word atonement literally means at one meant. It's those three words, at one meant. Atonement needs to occur in order for two opponents to be made one, to be put at one. Atonement is a relational word. And the most prominent image associated with atonement in the Old Testament is the image of a sacrifice. Blood shed in order to secure atonement and rebind relationships that have been broken. See, in, in other ancient cultures, they had religion and they had sacrifices, but the sacrifices only had two uses. You were either offering a sacrifice out of gratitude, like, like if there was a good harvest, you would sacrifice to your God and say, thank you for this good harvest, or you offered a sacrifice in the hopes of achieving a particular outcome. So maybe at the start of the season, when it's time uh, for planting, you would offer a sacrifice asking God to give you a good harvest. But it's only in the Bible where the God of the Bible employs the use of sacrifice as a means by which relationships are restored and maintained. That's a biblical distinctive of the God of the Bible. Sacrifices restore and maintain relationship. The guilty are required to offer sacrifices in order to atone for sins and restore relationship. An animal is offered in exchange for the person who had broken covenant with God. Think of the important theological lessons that are embedded in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We talked about this last week, when we, or maybe it was two weeks ago, when we considered 12-year-old Jesus celebrating Passover. Right? Through the sacrificial system, we learned of God's 
holiness and his unwillingness to compromise his holiness. Through the sacrificial system, we learn that sin is serious. It's deadly serious. It breaks our relationship with God. Through the sacrificial system, we're metaphorically introduced to the idea that atonement can be accomplished if the innocent dies in the place of the guilty. All of that comes through in the biblical instructions found in the book of Leviticus regarding the Day of Atonement. In, in Leviticus, it's explained that once a year, the high priest who represents the people, after making atonement for himself first, then enters into the Holy of Holy and makes atonement for all the people of God. That happens every year without fail, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what kind of year it's been. That tells us that the people of Israel, like all people, existed in a state of sin, and no animal sacrifice could ultimately remove their sin from them because this perfect sacrifice had not yet been offered. And so that introduces the central puzzle of the Old Testament, which is summarized in the words of Exodus 34, which I read already. Exodus 34 tells us Two things about God, that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and quick to forgive. But it also says that he will surely not leave the guilty unpunished. Both. How can he be both quick to forgive the guilty and also not leave the guilty unpunished? How can he do both? It says both right in that verse. That's the question that's raised by the Old Testament and not fully answered until you get to the New it's, it's hinted at in the old. It's in the promises of one to come in the Old Testament that make the message of, of the Old Testament so, so hopeful. Despite all the, all the tragic things that happens, it's a hopeful book. And when Jesus finally arrives on the scene in the first century, Jewish people, they're not wondering whether or not the Messiah will come. They know he'll come because God promised, but they don't know when he'll come or how he'll come or what he'll be like. And so a lot of people misunderstood it when he arrived. But Jesus himself explained that he had to come to fulfill the Old Testament promises of a coming forever king. But he also indicated that he fulfilled the promises of a coming suffering servant who would suffer on behalf of God's people. No one expected the Messiah to be both. That's the answer to the Old Testament puzzle. How can God be slow to anger and quick to forgive and also not leave the guilty unpunished through an atoning sacrifice? That's how. Through the suffering of the innocent on behalf of the guilty. That's how the Old Testament says God will do that. Isaiah 53, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the Old Testament puzzle that gets answered in the New Testament. That's the big promise made in the Old Testament, kept in the New Testament. And tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll take a look at the New Testament, and we'll see how that promise got specifically fulfilled in the New Testament. And we'll see why God's faithful fulfillment of a promise so long ago is a source of hope.
for you and I today. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your consistency. It's one of the best, most comforting and encouraging things about you. You don't change. You haven't changed. Your plan of salvation hasn't changed. Your character hasn't changed. The story that you're telling hasn't changed. The outcome of that story hasn't changed. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the comfort that that brings. We thank you that you have written us into this story. We thank you for all of the centuries that went before and the way that this plot unfolded according to your purposes and plan. And we thank you that when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your son. We're eager to hear that part of the story as well. In Christ's name, amen.